I'm Pastor Richard Gamble, and the following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Bastrop, Louisiana. To find out more about First Baptist Bastrop, go to www.firstbastrop.org. That's www.firstbastrop.org. Let's start by going to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And Lord, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would write its eternal truth on all our hearts this morning. Lord, help us to hear your word. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts willing to obey your word this morning. And Lord, as we look to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, Lord, reveal to us the true hope that we have in him. So no matter what we face in this life, Lord, we can always have that hope, that eternal hope in Jesus Christ our Lord. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can turn with me to Isaiah's, uh, Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah chapter 63, Isaiah chapter 63, we're looking at uh, Isaiah 63, 15 through 64, 12, so uh, it's a section here that spans uh, two chapters here, or at least portions of two chapters in Isaiah, so Isaiah 63, 15 through 64, 12. Today, we, of course, lit our first Advent candle. Uh, Advent, of course, is celebrating the coming. That's what Advent means. It celebrates the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of the Lord, the one that was promised in the Old Testament, was fulfilled in the gospel, and we look for another Advent yet to come. He is still yet to come. And so today, as we begin this season of Advent, celebrating the coming of and looking forward to the next coming of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we're going to start a series here in Isaiah. Uh, see the gospel as it is portrayed in Isaiah. So over the course of the next four weeks or so, we'll, we'll see how Isaiah pro, uh, prophesied about the first and the second advent of Jesus Christ. So we're going to see that today. You know, as we lit the, the candle of hope, it brings to mind that we all seek hope. All of us are looking for hope. Everyone is looking for hope. People all around the world are looking for hope. The young married couple hopes to have a child. A single mother hopes that she can make ends meet. The daughter caring for her sick mother hopes for healing. The elderly man sitting in the nursing home all along hopes someone will come visit him. And the war-torn country hopes for peace. All of us have those times of desperation, times of hope. And sometimes in life there seems like there is no hope. But as our text shows us today, when life seems hopeless, hope in God. When life seems hopeless, hope in God. That's the message of 
this text here in Isaiah. This part here is this, this section of Isaiah is a prophetic prayer. Isaiah in the Spirit is praying this prayer, and, and we're kind of breaking in the middle of it here. It spans several chapters here at the end of Isaiah, but we're, we're focusing in. He's already been talking about God and, and God's promises and, and where Israel is, but, but he's also looking forward into the, the future and some things that will take place. And, and as he, he gets here, he, he prays a prayer of hope. And we're focusing in on Isaiah's prayer of hope. As you hope in God, prayerfully hope in God. That is, we should pray a prayer of hope. When life seems hopeless, stop and pray a prayer of hope. And what does a prayer of hope look like? Well, today I want to show you in this, from this text three moves in a prayer of hope. Three moves in a prayer of hope that Isaiah demonstrates for us. We could probably name a few more, to, just to be honest, even from this text. But, but here are three major moves in a prayer of hope as we look for hope even in our own lives. Now let me kind of give you some background, some context information here about Isaiah and, and his prophecy. Especially since we're going to be in this book for the next four weeks or so. But Isaiah begins, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, begins the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, which he, was, which, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Isaiah began to prophesy in the days of Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king. If you remember your church history or your Bible history, your Old Testament history, you know in Judah there, was a, there were a series of kings and some kings were good kings and some kings were not so good kings. Well, Uzziah was one of the good kings in the Davidic line. Second uh, Kings chapter 15 verse 3 tells us that Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so he was a godly king who led the the people of Israel the the people of Judea into the ways of the Lord and then uh, actually Isaiah began at the very end he began to prophesy at the very end of Uzziah's reign because Isaiah chapter 6 tells us and when Isaiah was called unto the Lord or called to, to the ministry of the Lord it was in the, the year that King Uzziah died. And so he began his prophetic ministry at the very end of Uzziah's reign as king. But then after Uzziah came Jotham. And Jotham, he kind of co-reigned with Uzziah for a few years there because Uzziah had leprosy. And so uh, Jotham kind of reigned with his father and, and kind of did the public ministry of the, the office of king in place of Uzziah in his latter years. So Jotham, he was a good king as well, although we don't have a lot about Jotham. Scripture does tell us that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, and so he was a, a good king. But then after Jotham came Ahaz. Ahaz was not a good king. Ahaz, Scripture tells us, did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. 2 Kings 16.2 tells us that. And so he, he did not lead the people in the ways of the Lord, but instead he lay, led them into further idolatry. But then after Ahaz, Ahaz's son was 
Hezekiah. And most of us know, if you know, those who are familiar with Scripture know, that Hezekiah was a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. 2 Kings 18.3, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, during Hezekiah's reign, he led the, the people of Israel in a, a kind of a, a time of revival. And he did a lot of good things. He, he took out the idolatry that, that uh, Ahaz had put in place, and he destroyed all of those monuments and took those out. And so it was a good time. It was a time of great revival in the time of King Hezekiah. And that was one of the, the major portions of Isaiah's uh, reign or, or ministry as a prophet in Israel. And so he had a lot to do, a lot of influence on Hezekiah. And then after Hezekiah was Manasseh. Manasseh. I heard somebody grunt. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Manasseh. Ugh. That's kind of what that, that defines Manasseh's reign. Manasseh was an evil king. And it even it says in Scripture, right? Ahaz, it just said Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But for Manasseh, it says Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Manasseh's reign, Manasseh was an evil, evil king. Now, I think he did repent in his latter years, but the damage had already been done at that point. He was an evil, evil king, and he led the, the people of, of Judea into great idolatry. In fact, it was Manasseh's idolatry that brought about the announcement, the pronouncement of God's curse upon Judea. And you can read that in 2 Kings 21, 10 through 15, because of Manasseh's idolatry and the depths in which he led Israel and Judea into idolatry God says I'm done with Judea I'm going to bring upon the full curse of the covenant upon my people because of their blatant idolatry and rebellion and tradition tells us that Manasseh actually martyred Isaiah so in the first year or so of Manasseh's reign that's why it doesn't say that Isaiah prophesied in the years of Manasseh because Manasseh hated Isaiah he watched Isaiah during the years of his father's reign, Hezekiah, and he hated Isaiah. And according to tradition, he had Isaiah martyred. He had him murdered. He had him killed in the, about the first year of his reign, somewhere around 687 B.C. And he had him killed by sawing him asunder, Hebrews tells us. The, the book of Hebrews tells us. In other words, he had him sawn in two. Tradition says with a wooden saw. So you can imagine that. But uh, Manasseh murdered Isaiah. You know, although Isaiah, he, he didn't live to see and experience the downfall and the destruction of Jerusalem. He, he prophesied about it. He said it's coming. Uh, and obviously from our text we're, we're going to read the, today, God gave him a vision of it because as Isaiah is praying this, this prayer of hope, he is, he is indicating that Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple has been brought down. In other words, God gave him a vision of what was coming. 
Even in his own days, Isaiah saw a vision of what was coming. He saw the destruction of Israel. He saw the destruction of Jerusalem. He saw the destruction of the temple that would come by, at the hands of the Babylonians. And he was weeping and he was mourning in this prophetic prayer over the destruction that was still yet to come and as he is praying this prayer of hope he is looking to the future destruction and although Isaiah himself did not experience that destruction this prayer became a prayer of hope for the the Jews who did experience the destruction of Jerusalem who did experience the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and who were living in exile in Babylon. So this is a prayer of hope for those Jews who were still yet to come from Isaiah's perspective, but this was a prayer of hope. They were, it seemed to them that life was absolutely hopeless, and they, fall, they fell back on this prayer, this prayer, this prophetic prayer of Isaiah, looking for hope Hope in God's promised Messiah who would come. This is a prayer of hope. Dear Christian, when life seems hopeless, hope in God by praying a prayer of hope. Model your prayer even after this prayer and pray a prayer of hope. So as we begin looking at this prayer of hope today, the first thing that we notice here, the first move, the starting point for a prayer of hope is this, acknowledge God's majesty. Acknowledge God's majesty. And we see this in this first major section here of the prayer. This beginning in, in 63.15 and going through 64.4, we see Isaiah begins by acknowledging God's majesty. Look what our text says. Look down from heaven. Notice that. Take note of that. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not know, acknowledge us, you, O Lord, that is Yahweh, the covenant name of God, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would Rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. 
when you did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. Now, there's a lot here in this. There's a lot that we could say. In fact, I could probably preach a whole message on just this little section here. But let me just point out for you three attributes that highlight God's majesty here in this opening to this prayer of hope. Notice Isaiah brings out, first of all, God's transcendence. God's transcendence, that's a big word, that's a big theological word. What do do I mean by God's transcendence? Well, transcendence means that which is higher than or surpasses other things. God is transcendent. He is outside the universe and no part of the universe is identical to Him or any part of Him. He is above all of creation. He is not in creation. He is not a part of creation. He is above creation. He is greater than creation. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. He has to look down upon creation because He is in heaven the highest heavens. Rend! Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. God is transcendent. He is above all things. He is God Almighty. God omnipotent. He is God in the heavens. He transcends everything else in creation Isaiah 46:9 God says of himself for I am God there is no other I am God there is none like me God was never created there was never a time that God came into existence God has always been existence he he is eternal God He is outside of creation. He is above creation. He is transcendent. Oh, when you're hopeless, pray about God's transcendence. Pray about His omnipotence. How He is above all and beyond all. God is transcendent. But if God was just merely transcendent, we wouldn't have much hope in God. If He was just above creation, if He was outside of creation, uh, uh, absolutely, then, then we would have no reason to hope in God because He would be beyond us. He would be beyond our reach. In fact, there are a lot of theologians, a lot of philosophers who, who believe in a God who is transcendent. They believe in a God who is outside creation but they say that we can't know that God we can't have a relationship with that God because he is so far above us but scripture tells us that God is not just transcendent he is also imminent Isaiah brings out here God's imminence another big theological term God's God's imminence means that while God is above creation he is also present and involved in his creation he is just not he's not just god in heaven he is god with us 
He is God Emmanuel. He is a God who, who takes part in His creation. He works in His creation. He's involved in His creation. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts, your compassion are held back from me. In other words, he's, he's acknowledging here that God is a compassionate merciful God, a gracious God. Although it seems at that time that God is he's holding back His compassion, He is recognizing that God is just not a God who is out there, separate. He is a God who is involved in His creation. And He goes on to, to even further recognize this. Notice what He says there. For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. That's Abraham. They're, they're far removed from Abraham. Abraham didn't see what was coming. He didn't see it like this. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, that is Jacob. Jacob was renamed Israel. You, O Lord. Again, we see that Lord there. And remember, guys, remember Lord when it's in all caps is the, the Hebrew term. For the covenant name of the Lord. So we might transliterate that or translate that Yahweh. And sometimes people will translate that Yahweh. You, O Yahweh, you are our covenant God, our covenant-making God. You, O Yahweh, are our Father. Now, he's not just saying that in the sense that, that He was... Uh, he's our Father in that He created us and made us. No, He's saying that He is our Father. He is the Father of His covenant people, of that covenant community. God is in a special relationship with His covenant community, a relationship that is unlike that with the rest of His creation. He is coming to them as a loving, caring Father, you, O Yahweh, are our Father. You are involved in our lives. You are interested in us. You love us. You care for us. You, you prepare a way before us. You are Yahweh, our Father. And he goes on to note there, and our Redeemer from of old is your name. He is our Father, our covenanting God, and our Father and our Redeemer looking back towards the Exodus. Back when Moses brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. By the power of God, God redeemed them. They were in slavery. And God redeemed them from slavery and brought them into the land of promise and gave them a place in the promised land. He goes on to, to refer to this as well. Uh, when you did awesome things, this is uh, verse, uh, chapter 64, verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old no one has heard nor ear perceived, nor, nor perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. He's looking back to Mount Sinai when the, the presence of the Lord came down on Mount Sinai. And Scripture tells us that the, the mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. See, God is transcendent. 
but He is also imminent. He comes down to His people. He is a loving God who, who makes covenant with people and becomes their Father. He is a God who redeems His people from slavery. Whether that be slavery in Egypt or slavery to sin, He is our covenant-making God who redeems His people. He is imminent. He is involved in the lives of His covenant people. God is transcendent. God is imminent. But also, notice that God is also holy. He is holy. That is, He is separate. He is different from anything or anyone else. We've already kind of made this point in His transcendence, but, but we see here that He is completely holy. He is different from all other supposed gods. Notice 64 verse 4, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. That is, uh, the sense of wait there is, is one who hopes in God. For someone who hopes in God, no one has heard of a God or seen a God who acts for those who hope in Him. Now, as Isaiah says this statement, he is bringing out that God is holy. He is wholly different from all the other supposed idols. Other people would have recognized this. The people that, that Isaiah is writing to, they would have recognized this. We don't act upon God. God acts upon us. We can never act upon God. We can never do anything to make God do anything that we want Him to do. You see, this was absolutely different from paganism. All the idols that Israel chased after, all of those gods were impotent gods. They were powerless gods. You see, pagans acted for their gods. Their idols were impotent. They, they could not serve themselves. And so the worshiper had to serve the God and, and bring the God sacrifices and bring the God food and, and serve the God. And they would serve the God so that that God might uh, find favor in them and serve them. And, and so it was kind of like, we'll serve you if you'll serve us. And so they had to serve their gods. And if that didn't work, then they would cast spells upon their God to, to make their God perform for them. But Isaiah says, from of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, a God like you, who acts for those who wait for Him. See, we don't act for God. We don't act upon God. God acts for us. He acts upon us. We don't act upon God. We don't sacrifice to make Him act for us. There's, there's nothing that we can do to control Him. We don't barter with God. God acts for those who wait for Him, who hope in Him. As you pray a prayer of hope, acknowledge God's majesty, God's transcendence, His eminence, His holiness. There's none like Him. He is a merciful God who loves those and, and loves those who hope in Him. 
We'll talk more about that in a minute. But as you pray, do not rush to request. Start by acknowledging God's majesty. In other words, start with worship. Start, start by, by stating who God is and what He does. Start with that. Acknowledging who God is. You know, we don't barter with God. We don't do things to, to make God do act for us. God is above that. Now, I'll confess, I've done that before in my life, right? I'm sure all of us pro probably have done that before in our lives. I can remember a time, uh, one time that came to mind this week as I was studying this was when my, my granddaddy got sick and he had a massive heart attack and and. I was young, I was in the seventh grade when he had a heart attack, and I was at that stage in my life where uh, I, didn't, I wasn't spending as much time with my granddad as I once was. You know, there was football, and there was uh, friends, and all of these things, and, and I wasn't spending time with my granddad like I had been. I mean, used to, we were almost inseparable, uh, but, you know, teenage years come, and, and I hadn't been spending time with him, and so when he got sick, when he had a heart attack, I, I prayed, Lord God, if you'll just save him, right? If you'll just save him, I'll do such and such. If you'll just give me some more time with me, I will do such and such i will be a better person i will, I will do this i will do that i try to barter with god but that wasn't god's will and god called my grandpa home he said we can't barter with god we have nothing that god wants or needs he owns everything he owns you. He owns me. He owns everything that we have. We have nothing that God needs from us. He is transcendent. He is above us. But praise the Lord, He is imminent. He is with us. And He hears us. And He loves us. And He cares for us. And He's merciful and compassionate towards us. He is a God that we can hope in. As you pray a prayer of hope, start with acknowledging God's majesty. Jesus gives us the same advice, doesn't he? When his disciples ask him, teacher, how shall we pray? And Jesus says, start like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Don't jump to request. Start by acknowledging God's majesty. Start with worshiping God for who he is. A prayer starts by acknowledging God's majesty. Second, a prayer of hope moves to confession. Confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to God. Move to confession Notice the next little section here in our prayer, starting in verse 9, 64, chapter 64, verse 5. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. In other words, those who remember to walk in your ways is what he's getting at. But then note, behold, 
you were angry. And we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquity like the wind take us, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. As Isaiah prays this prayer of hope, he moves to confession. He moves to confession. He acknowledges that, that God blesses righteousness. You meet Him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Those who remember to walk in your ways. You bless those who do righteousness. Who work righteousness. Who walk in perfect righteousness. But then, He acknowledges that's not us. Behold, you were angry and we sinned and our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? Isaiah acknowledges the fact that we're all sinners. It is a corporate sin, right? It's not just Isaiah. It's not just Isaiah saying, I'm a sinner. He's saying, we. He uses the plural pronoun. We. We sinned. Our sins, in our sins, we have been a long time. It's we, it's all of us. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. We are all sinners. No one can do perfect righteousness. And we are a long time sinners. We've sinned for a long time. I love Psalm 51.5, David praying there, a prayer confession. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, David acknowledges there he was a sinner from birth. We are born sinners. We are born into sin. We are all sinners from the very moment of conception. We are sinners. There are none who are righteous, not even one. And we deserve God's full condemnation for our sin. We, are, we all fade like a leaf. Our righteous deeds are polluted. They're, they're stains. Whatever righteousness we can work up, it's all stained. It's like a polluted garment, a, a filthy rag. We all fade like a leaf. Our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. We deserve God's judgment. That's what we deserve. We don't deserve God's blessings. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve God's mercy. We deserve God's punishment because of our sin. Because of our rebellion against God, that's what we deserve. But by God's grace, though we deserve His condemnation, He gives us hope. 
The good news is, John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must confess our sins. God, I'm desperate. I don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve hope. I deserve your eternal condemnation for my sin and my rebellion. But God, I fall upon your mercy and your grace. Can we be honest for a minute? You know, sometimes when we are going through tough times in our lives, we can get holier than thou. We can kind of get that kind of a complex going. We might think, oh, oh God, I don't deserve this. Oh God, what did I do to deserve this? Let me tell you. We, we can't bear what we deserve. What we deserve is eternity in hell having the wrath of God poured out upon us because of our sin and our rebellion against the holy God, we cannot bear what we deserve. And we don't want what we deserve. You think what you're going through is tough? It could be worse. And for those who don't know God and don't hope in, in Christ, it will get a whole lot worse. When life seems hopeless, confess your sins to God and He will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. In hopeless times, confess your sins to God. A prayer of hope starts by acknowledging God's majesty. It then moves to confession as you confess your sins to God. Third, a prayer of hope ends with hope. It ends with hope. Hope in God. Hope in God. In verse 8 of chapter 64, he, he turns the page a little bit. There's, there's this turning point in the text. Notice what he says there. But now... You have made us melt in the hands of our iniquities, but now, oh Lord, You are our Father. We are the clay and You are the potter. We are all the work of Your hand. Be not so terrible and angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a, de a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? And that is a rhetorical question. 
expecting a negative answer, the answer is no, that's not our God. Because our God is a God who loves His covenant people and keeps the promises that He has made. Isaiah here moves to, to put his hope in God's saving grace. He first cries out at recognizing God's saving grace. You, O Lord, You are our Father. We are clay and You are our potter. We are all the work of Your hands. Be not so terribly angry with us and remember not iniquity forever. Be pleased to look. We are all Your people. You are our Redeemer. You are our Savior. Isaiah recognizes God's saving grace. It's not because of us, our sins. Because of our sin, we deserve condemnation. But because of Your grace, God. Because of what You have done, we have hope. Oh, when times seem hopeless, hope in God's saving grace. But don't just stop there. Hope also in God's eternal promises. Hope also in God's eternal promises. As you look back to uh, verse 12, go back to 12. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly as Isaiah looks to the future and the desolation of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple? He says, are you going to leave us like this? Is this the end? And the answer is no. Because God is a God of promises who keeps His Word. Isaiah reflects back on the promise God made Abraham. Abraham, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He looks back on the promise of of God to David, through your seed, I will establish an eternal kingdom. Isaiah is, is hoping in God's eternal promises God will establish His eternal kingdom. Now if we were to go on to the next chapter here, we see God's response. God picks up and and God answers Isaiah's prayer in, in the very next verse. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, I, here I am, here I am to the nations that was called by my, that was not called by my name. God answers Isaiah. And as you go on through there, we're not going to read all that, but as you go on through there, if you will look over to 65 verse 17 and notice what God says in response to Isaiah's prayer of hope. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mine, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I created. For behold, I created Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping 
Satan and the cry of distress. God says there's coming a day when I will make all things new. Yes, Isaiah, destruction is coming. Yes, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. Yes, I'm going to destroy the temple. But there's coming a day when the Messiah will come and He will make all things new. There will be not just Jerusalem. There's going to be a new heaven and there's going to be a new earth. All things are going to be new. That's my promise, God says. Yeah, you're going through a hard time. Yes, there's still hard times ahead, but hope in my eternal promise. God says to His people, and as the church in the first century was going through great persecution, what did God say? To his church, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things, all the former things have passed away. A prayer of hope reflects on the hope that we have in God, in God's salvation, and in God's eternal promises. Oh, when life seems hopeless, hope in God. Tradition tells us again that Manasseh martyred Isaiah by sawing him in half with a wooden saw. Those who looked on derided Isaiah and called on him to recant all of his prophecies about the destruction of Israel. To this he said, there is nothing more you can take from me than the skin on my body. With that, Isaiah turned his eyes towards heaven. And he began to cry. He didn't ever cry it out. He never wept, but he began to speak in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he spoke in the Spirit until he breathed his last breath. Well, when life seems hopeless, hope in God. Whatever you may be going through, no matter your current circumstances, no matter what you're facing, stop. Take a minute. And pray a prayer of hope. Not trusting in what's happening right now, but trusting in God's salvation that He has provided in the first advent of His Son Jesus Christ and hope in the future life, eternal life, that He has given us in Christ Jesus. Oh, when life seems hopeless, trust in God. He is making all things new. Now, if you've never 
hoped in Jesus Christ. If you've never put your faith in Christ, then today, sure enough, you are hopeless. And there is no hope for you. If you've never trusted in Jesus, whatever the worst in this life is still the best that you can ever expect. Judgment is coming. But today you can have hope. Eternal hope. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came, He lived, and He died paying the penalty for you, for your sins, in your place. We are celebrating in Christmas the first coming of Jesus as He came to save us from our sins. Put your hope in Jesus Christ. And you can hope in God's eternal promise of eternal life and His kingdom still yet to come. Right now, you may be hopeless. Put your hope in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the hope we have in Jesus. We thank You that even though sometimes this life gets tough, Lord, we go through some hard times. But the worst that we experience in this life will be the worst that we ever experience. Period. Because, Lord, you sent your son Jesus to live and to die for us. And through his resurrection, Lord, we have assurance of your eternal promise. Thank you. That when life is, seems hopeless, we can hope in you and the salvation that you have provided us in Christ our Lord. And Lord, if there are those here today who are truly hopeless, oh Lord, let them see Jesus. Let them see the salvation that you have provided and receive that gift of salvation and find hope in Christ. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.